Um, I'm going to read from Romans 7, verses 7 through 10. Now, Paul is dealing with this question of what we're supposed to do with the rules. Now, nothing could sound more dull than that intro. (laughs) But bear with me for a second because we're coming to something tonight that has become kind of a, um, oh, how can I say this? A burr in my saddle. Um, In other words, it's, it's something that to me has become so huge and so big that I really get excited every time I talk about it. So bear with me. Uh, I want to try to be as clear as I can. But I don't know if I'm going to be able to communicate to you how much I think, how important I think this is. But in, in, by way of introduction, let me read from Romans 7, 7 through 10. He, uh, Paul says, so what shall we say then, that the law is sin? Well, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Paul is giving us an illustration of something there in Romans 7 that is a huge principle from the what do we do now. If you trace in our discussion here, and of course our, our, our study on the, uh, on the image of God this summer has been coming from Richard Pratt's book, uh, Designed uh, for Dignity. And we have to ask the next question, that if what we talked about last week and this glorious salvation that God brings to us by His grace, if that is true, what now? In other words, what does it say about how I'm supposed to live, about how I'm supposed to look at my life, if those things are true, okay? Um, In other words, we've seen that the dignity that God has given us was twisted with sin, uh, and then we saw that God gave us power to intervene by His grace to change us. The rest of the Old Testament, from Genesis 15 on, can in many ways be summed up with one word, struggle. It was a fight for the rest of that time. Um, You know, God comes to Noah and he promises him stability. And what does Noah do? He struggles. He goes to Abraham and he promises him a family. And what happens? He struggles. Later on, you find that God reaffirms that relationship with a guy named Moses, right? To him, he promises to lead him. And what does Moses do? He struggles. And then finally, the last sort of big character in the Old Testament is the character of King David. Well, God promises King David that he's going to give him an entire kingdom. What does David do? He struggles. Y'all, this is a huge issue. And I want to simply introduce to you tonight this one principle. Why is it that the Christian life, why is it that when God begins to snatch up his images and begin to fix them, why is it such a struggle? Here's the answer. At least on one level, this is an answer. Y'all, because we are in process. This is, <laughs> this is my little gem of wisdom that I hope by the time we get finished here, you'll see, in my opinion, is one of the biggest Christian insights that you can grasp. There are few more fundamental Christian insights and to understand that in God's world, we live in a place where He has invaded God has invaded with His grace the hostility of His images who are shaking their fist at Him in rebellion. But He's not completed the process. And that is huge to understand. 
He's invaded. He started. Grace is proceeding, but it's not completed. All right. And for that reason, we live in a very interesting world. You see, Paul looks and says about the law that the law is holy, just and good. The law is a good thing. Of course, it's a good thing. We appreciate it. It shows me my sin, he just said in verse seven. But the moment that that law came inside me, what did I notice? I began to struggle. Suddenly, you know, all of a sudden, I didn't really realize that I was a coveter until the law looked and goes, you shall not covet. Suddenly, sin sort of jumped up in me. It came alive. It doesn't say that it just showed up. It means that it came alive to him. In other words, he instantly began to struggle. And so every single time I deal with God's will in my life, and this is every question, kids, this is your vocation. This is the person that you'll marry. This is what in the world happened to me because of my upbringing and my family. This is, um, deals with your own sense of sanctification. How am I supposed to grow as a Christian? How do I make myself change the stuff about my life that I, know, that I don't like and I know God doesn't like either? This is everything. We are in process God has given us dignity by His grace, but yet we've rebelled against it. And for that reason, there is a twin dynamic. That's the best phrase I could do. I don't think it's very good to you. Um, there's a twin dynamic, all right? That is, it's, it's, it, it's two complementary truths that place together create a machine that has got to define where you live. The big question we're asking tonight is, where do we live? What, is, what does the world look like for a Christian? Does that make sense? Like, How do you approach this world? We're going to try to understand this just a second, okay? <clears throat> that dynamic as it works together, I'm going to tell you what the two twin dynamics are. That dynamic produces the central feature of the Christian life, which is wisdom, okay? Um, it's interesting. I wonder what you would think would be the chief and highest of the Christian graces, Love, obviously, is Paul's you know, great uh, illustration. Wisdom has to be up there in that list. We have a whole book in the Old, in Old Testament devoted to the attaining of wisdom. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. Okay, so what I want to do very quickly, very quickly, and then we'll take some time to illustrate it, is to look at these four Old Testament... Um, when I say patriarchs, do you know what I mean? They're like big characters, all right? Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David... And I simply want to show you something true about them. Let's start, first of all, with Noah. What was God's fundamental promise to Noah? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Well, God looked at Noah and said, Look, I'm no longer going to cause the natural world to just churn with upheaval um, and become for you something that's unstable. And he gives us the rainbow. Remember the rainbow we talked about and the bow? This was last week's discussion. That's right. And so basically he promised man that he could work within predictable structures. And, 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 and it was a new world order in which he could multiply and, um, uh, uh, um, uh, multiply and take dominion as well. So here's the question. What did mankind do, though, with that predictability? Well, on the one hand, mankind did a lot of good things with it. You've got to grasp this, y'all. <clears throat> because God's put predictability in the universe, we were able to discover stuff. Okay? God looked and said, you're going to be able to go out and count on the world basically being like it was yesterday. In other words, there is uniformity in nature and there's repetition in nature and therefore there is the process of scientific discovery. 
Okay. Now, look, I simply mention this because this is such a huge deal now. I don't know if y'all have noticed, but in the last five, five years, eight years, scientists in the West, okay, Western uh, civil, civilization, has produced scientists that are freaking out because they've suddenly realized that there's been something of a spiritual, somewhat religious revival I don't mean a revival in the Christian sense, but people have more been a, more tolerant of spirituality. And more and more scientists have looked up and realized that the culture has left them. You follow me? And here's what they're all saying. They're all looking going, if everybody becomes religious, that's the end of science. Um, Richard Dawkins wrote his book, um, The God Delusion, where he basically says that if you believe in God, you have... A, it's wildly illogical, he says, but you've also pulled the rug out of any hope to discover anything in the future. Uh, Christopher Hitchens has written his... Um, oh, what is Hitchens' one? Another, yeah, God is not great. Yeah, God is not great. <laughs> the, the, the ever so subtly uh, uh, titled God is not great. Um, with, with the same basic premise. These are all scientists who are saying... Um, if you believe in God, if you have any sort of religious connection, it's the end of science. Now, I don't want to caricature him. Follow their logic. A scientist believes that what's at the heart of his task as a scientist is to be curious, to look and go, hmm, why is it that that particular phenomenon which I am observing, phenomena or phenomenon, what's singular? Phenomenon, phenomenon is singular, thank you. Phenomenon. Dun, 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 dun. Um, anyway. It, why does that occur the way in which it does in nature? Why, why is that the way that is? There's curiosity there. Well, what the scientist says is you religious people, your answer to that question is a cop-out. Because what you look at is you look and say, well, God did it. God's the reason why that's there. And so they believe that therefore the Christians will not be interested in science because all they want to do is chalk it up to God did it. Right? I just want to contest that point as being fundamentally false. <laughs> you see, if God has created the uniformity and predictability of nature, it doesn't lead me to be less curious of it. It leads us to be more curious. If the resources which he has implanted in the universe are unlimited, which I think is what's being said when God speaks to Noah. He looks and goes, look, out there is nature and it's amazing. Go discover it. And so mankind goes, and every piece of mining that he does of the created world is a process of living on the basis of the good promises that God made to Noah. You follow me? Okay, so in other words, we did something good with that promise. Good has resulted because of God's grace. <laughs> However, um, we have also abused it. We have wasted time and wasted resources. We have invented ways to take these truths that God has granted in here for granted, right? Um, <clears throat> look, y'all, we are still living, philosophically speaking, in the, in, in the um, effects of what is known as the Enlightenment. When I say this, do you at least know that word, the Enlightenment? Okay, basically, during the time of the 15, 1600s or so, there began to be a, a lot of conflict going on in the religious world called the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. You know, the Roman Catholic uh, split off and the Protestant split off from that and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, the culture observed all those religious wars and basically it was like, 
you know what? We're done with you religious people. Uh, the truth of the matter is, the whole God thing has been the problem from the beginning. Why can't man do it himself? We can figure out the world on the basis of our own understanding. We can do it. We can, man, said Voltaire, is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. There is nothing beyond your own personal consciousness, right? <clears throat> that right there is the basic... Um, um, that's the basic approach. In, in, in Pratt's book, he says, one doctor says, we have used the very same knowledge uh, to nurture life in the womb and to, de- to destroy life in the womb. Talking about all the advances in medicine. Advances in techniques in prenatal care have also led to more effective abortion techniques. Now look, all I'm trying to illustrate for you, and I'm not going to spend near as long on the other three people because you're going to get the point. God comes down and and intervenes by His grace in the midst of sinful people. What happens? On the one hand, there was legitimate good that happens. On the other hand, there was some things that were not so good. That's my principle. That's what I mean when I say we live in process. Okay? Let me try again. All right, let's look, let's look at Abraham, right? What happened to Abraham? Well, God gave Abraham an amazing gift. He said, I'm going to bless your family. Your family is going to be a special recipient of my uh, 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 grace here and my divine intervening power, right? So what did Abraham do with that knowledge? What happened to him? Well, something good happened. We had the Jewish people. In the Old Testament, the truths of God's law and of God's character and of His desire for the world were housed within the Jewish nation. Jewish nation. It's hard to say. Um, And therefore, they were the recipients of all this grace. And guess what, kids? The Jewish people gave us Jesus, (laughs) humanly speaking. The Jewish people gave us what we know as Judeo-Christian values. So much of what we know sort of instinctually, or what we think is instinctive, as fairness in our culture came from the deposit of Jewish people. It's a great value of what God did. (laughs) And yet, at the same time, that very family, irony of ironies, if you're really reading the Bible for drama, irony of ironies, that very family, who was meant to be the storehouse of God's truth, rejected him when he showed up. (laughs) That's what the whole New Testament is about. People kind of freaking out that, uh, who, is this, uh, who is this Messiah? No, he can't be the one. Because they had come. Why? Because they took pride in their heritage. Now look, again, what I want you to hear, and that's a theological truth we could talk about, but I want you to hear that there was a good thing that happened with that, and there was a bad thing that happened. The truth was appreciated, and it was abused. All right? Okay, y'all are still looking at me like... Let's look at the third one. Let's look at Moses. Moses, equally so, was given a great commission to what? To lead the people of God, to take them out of their slavery and into blessing. And, of course, part of that was guaranteeing them struggle. And part of that struggle was to give them the law. Well, what happened when Moses led the people to the promised land? Well, they get there and they get this glorious, beautiful piece of land known as the land of Canaan, where Israel establishes itself for a couple thousand years. Right then, there's this big break, and now all of a sudden they're back, you know, in uh, in the sort of recent uh, history uh, in terms of that particular square footage of land. Well, that was a good thing. God fulfilled His promises of giving people a sense of place, right? But what happened with that? 
They didn't utterly purge out the Canaanites. You know, all those Old Testament stories of Joshua and Judges. There's all this fighting between the, um, the Philistines, right? Uh, Philistines, Philistines, what are they? I don't know. How did y'all hear it pronounced growing up? I don't I want to speak y'all's language. The Phil- Philistines, Philistines, whatever. Anyway. But they're always battling, right? There's this conflict. In other words, something good happened, an, an acquisition of the land, but something bad happened because of their failure and their struggle. All right? Fourthly and finally, and we'll sort of open up for some questions here. Um, King David was the exact same way. God granted King David a special, a special affection. He looked at him and said, you know, uh, he's, he's a man after my own heart. He gave him riches and he gave him the promise of an eternal dynasty. Uh, you can look at this in Second Samuel chapter 7. God looks at David uh, and he reaffirms his covenant for a fourth time and says, David, there is going to be one of your children sitting on the throne of Israel forever and ever and ever. And of course, you start to read the story and you go, well, David's son Solomon was on the throne. But then after Solomon, the kingdom dissolved and crumbled and there was like there was nothing left, right? But what happened? Jesus comes along to be that eternal king. But more on that next week as we see all this uh, come together. Um, But here's the point. Even during the reign of King David, there was equity. There was justice. It's the golden age of Jewish history. That's a good thing. But at the same time, there was the Bathsheba incident. (laughs) Uh, David had adultery, committed adultery with a woman. And he, um, uh, after committing adultery with her, murdered her, uh, her husband, Uh, and therefore brought violence into his house, which led, we understand, to one of his favorite children dying. This whole Absalom story from your uh, Sunday school days, if you remember. In other words, David would rebel against God. Are you starting to, to get where I'm going with this? In every single story throughout the Old Testament, we have two twin truths being enacted. On the one hand, we see God constantly intervening and setting up flags, setting up a beachhead, as it were, of grace and of change in the life of His people. But y'all, at the same time, we see enormous failures from those very same people. Great success and great failure are mixed. And this is where you live. This is where you live as a Christian. And, and, and more and more I'm finding people have not gotten this. What we tend to live with in our own Christian life is what I call the great pendulum swing. For us, we tend to think that life is overly binary. What is something that's binary? Describe something that's binary. It's either what or what. It's black or white, one or a zero. Right, right, exactly. Computers are based upon a binary principle, either a zero or a one. It's only two options. We tend to think that that's what life is like, right? Um, how do I make my decisions in life? Well, it's either, I'm either certain about it or I'm uncertain. If I'm uncertain, I, it, I have no certainty whatsoever. If I'm certain about it, then I can forge ahead without anybody critiquing me at all. God's world does not work that way. When Christians have an act of grace in their lives, like becoming a Christian. That's kind of what I was getting at last week. I hope you caught that. 
Last week we saw how beautiful it was that God comes down and does something for us that we can't do for ourselves and pulls us out of this constant little roller coaster ride of a Christian life where we're in good with God when we're doing well and He is really disappointed with us when we're down here. That's not what God says. God says, I'm not going to just fulfill my side of the covenant, but I'm going to fulfill your side of the covenant too. But having done that, He has dropped you into the world where you are in between. And for that reason, every single... This is my little phrase I've been using, and it's horribly worded, so I'll apologize before I say it. Every single cultural artifact with which you will interact, whether it be education, politics, art, um, help me here, um, economics, um, child-rearing, parenting, marriage advice, even your own head is always going to have something good in it that can be commended that God's genuinely doing that's good and something that has to be condemned because it's thick with sin. Now look, you may think that sounds profoundly obvious. I'm going to tell you it is nothing of a sort. More and more I'm finding that that we are reactionary. We ride this pendulum back and forth between one side or the other assuming that the answers to life look like that and they don't let me here's a question that um that i get all the time um i think y'all ought to go see wally i think that movie is terrific right now what if somebody looks at you and says well is it a christian movie (laughs) that's awesome this glows in the dark um now how would you answer that question Is it a Christian movie? Now, my answer to that, to give you sort of the cut to the chase real quick, is, well, that's complicated now, isn't it? First of all, what do you mean by a Christian movie? Do you mean it's the saved movie? Uh, The movie that's been born again from the foundation of the earth? How about this? Well, do you listen to Christian music? Now, I'm not not denying the fact that there is a genre of of, uh, pop music known as... Christian CCM, Christian Contemporary Music. I'm not denying the existence of that. But I'm saying that a lot of people mean something very different about that, don't they? Right? They mean something very different. Look at Lukey's sword here. I'll put this on the podcast. Isn't that cool? And they glows in the dark. And it glows in the dark, too. That's why it's got the light on it. And give me two seconds, buddy. We're almost done. you got, you got to see this. I do, buddy. I can see it. Why don't you go back and sit with Mama just for a second? <laughs> How about this question? Um... Is my relationship with the person that I'm dating uh, a good one or a bad one? Um, Let me think of another one. Um, Do Christians vote Democrat or Republican? (laughs) That's right. That's right. See, now notice, now here's the deal. I will bet you $50 you have had conversations with people where suddenly... We're not having an intelligent conversation. We're just basically firing off missiles back and forth because all the two of us have done is polarized in our thinking and suddenly we're simply just lobbing you know, scud missiles at each other um, um, and just simply trying to gain, say, the other person. Oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And suddenly we're not having what I would consider to be, A, intelligent discussions, but B, worse, we're not full of wisdom. When we begin to deal as Christians with our world, 
You live in God's kingdom. But listen, listen, listen. The kingdom that God has established has been inaugurated, but not consummated. It's been begun, but it's not been completed. And because of that reason, you'll always live in between. And every single movie that you watch is going to have some vestige of God's common grace in it. Be it ever so small in some circumstances when you have crappy art, bad art. Um, in other words, you'll have to look and say there's some things about that that really do reflect God's truth. Perhaps the, 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 um, the uh, cinematography was great. Perhaps the director really communicated his vision well. Perhaps blah, blah, blah. In other words, there'll be common grace there. There may be other things you look and say, well, as a worldview uh, uh, um, uh, recommendation, I really can't buy into it because it lacks this or lacks that. All I'm saying is that makes a far more interesting conversation than, well, what was it rated? Do you follow me on this? It's the same thing with music. It's the same thing with friendships. I mean, do you think I ought to end this friendship or keep it together? Well, I don't know. Let's talk about it. But probably the answer is going to be something like this. It's complicated. And therefore, Christians have to do a couple of things. And I'll finish with this. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting cooked up. Um, Christians have to, first of all, live humbly. If you are a Republican, please be humble about that and acknowledge the fact that it's possible for someone to be sincere and be a Democrat. You may have every reason to look and show them how false they are and how bad for the country that is. And the same thing if you're a Democrat. If you're a Democrat and think those Republicans are crazy, you've got to respect with humility the fact that someone else has pursued God's kingdom in a way that may not necessarily exactly match yours. At the same time, though, We've got to be dependent people and recognize that I am a walking blind spot. <laughs> and God has got to intervene by His grace. And therefore, not only do we live humbly, but we live dependently, begging at every turn for God to grant us the wisdom by His Spirit that He's promised He would give us. You ever find that very interesting? There's two things in the New Testament that if you ask for, you will get. You get yes answers to them. Do you know this? Doesn't matter. All you got to do is pray for them and you get them. Number one is the Holy Spirit. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Ask for the Spirit, you'll get Him. Make sure you know what you're asking for, by the way. <laughs> Note to self. James chapter 1, though, says a second thing that we can get it just by asking. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask, because God gives freely to people who ask for wisdom. Don't let him ask with, with doubting because if anybody who doubts is like a double-minded man, right? In other words, wisdom. To look to God and say, God, you've got to grant me the insight to know how to live in this world. Because there's going to be some things I can look at and say, that's good. That is helping God's kingdom advance. There's going to be some things I've got to look at and say, that's bad. That's bad for God's kingdom. And learning to know which is which is part of the hard world of community. But this is it, my friends. It is where you live.